It is January 13th, 2016. Our message this evening is called Heart and Soul. Before we get into our text, January 13th is one of those special days. Pastor Matthew Pirro is 40 years old today. Matthew, would you come here for just a minute? I got to keep one good looking one on the stage all the time. Cassidy, did you have something for Matthew? It's a tie. It's required preaching attire. That is not a tie. Yes, absolutely. So it's got Hebrew written on it. On the back, it's the translation. Back is the translation. Surely the righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered. <laughs> well, I had the P. Rose standing right here. I, I want to do something publicly. I met Matthew in 1990. He's been putting up with me for 26 years. Matthew was born again before I was. Matthew baptized me. Matthew was baptized in the Holy Ghost before I was. The innumerable blessings that come to a man from keeping faithful covenant relationships with people. I remember the day that he first saw Cassidy. She was uh, putting all of her best foot forward. She had a little choker on and strutted <laughs> through the church. And I knew that the Lord had a wife for him. Now, all of these beautiful children and these years later in ministry, I want to encourage you. Life is much better if you genuinely share it with people. Amen. Okay. Uh, I want to pray for the P. Rose. And uh, I don't mind telling you that there is nobody in the whole world that I love more than this family. I love a bunch of you, but nobody more than the P. Rose. Uh, happy birthday, Matthew. Y'all stretch forward your hands in that crazy Christian way. Father, I thank you for the P. Rose. Lord, you are building a threefold cord in this ministry, and we thank you for it. Lord, the Stevens and the Sutherlands bless the P. Rose household. We say that we are blessed because of them. Mighty God, and with grateful hearts, eyes swelling with tears. We thank you for the life that you have blessed us with, with Matthew. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen, amen. We might as well say thank you, Patricia. You did all the hard work 40 years ago on this day. Y'all give Matthew and Cassidy a hand. We'll see where this word takes us tonight. It's called Heart and Soul. You can open to 1 Samuel 13. I gather from the... Uh, a plethora of prophecies that came forward during the service that it's possible somebody's struggling with despair. 
it's possible that somebody's begun to accept their circumstance is unchangeable. Now, I wouldn't say that our prophecies are not coordinated because that's not true. I can say they're not planned. They were coordinated by the Holy Ghost. When some of the newest Christians among us and some of the oldest Christians among us are all hearing the same thing, it must be that the Holy Spirit of God wants to speak a message to you. I want to begin with you in 1 Samuel 13 and lay out for you a little bit of the historical context. How incredibly hopeless this situation was. Are you there in 1 Samuel 13? Let me pick up in verse 5. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots. Say 3,000. 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. You can just jump out there and say that's a whole lot. If you're from Louisiana, you can say it's a whole, whole lot. I never knew what that meant, but I gather it's a bunch. Soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical, say critical, and that the army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and in cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. Does that sound like a setting that you would love to be involved in? Let me go to battle. Mighty God, on a day where we are severely outnumbered, where our king is a coward, and all of the people are full of fear and hiding in caves. You know, the American church might be the best fed church on the planet, but when it comes to your level of obedience outpacing your level of education, there we score an F and we do it regularly. Israel has been blessed. They got everything that they asked for. They got a king whose heart had been changed into a different person. He was the kind of king that went out and looked for his father's lost donkeys that represents us, and found them. I mean, this man was anointed of God because we know how the story ends. We forget how it begins. And in a moment of desperation, critical, where Israel's enemy is camped all around him, he makes a terrible mistake. Verse 8, He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offerings. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. Say, just as he finished. So is it true that Samuel didn't come at the prescribed time? That's an interesting question, isn't it? When Saul determined that the prescribed time was up, Samuel was not there. But Samuel was there. By the time he finished making the offering, whose watch was off? Who was staring at the sundial and got this wrong? You know, fear will make you do crazy things. Despair will make you do crazy things. What have you done, asked Samuel. Saul's reply is so telling. When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time, 
and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, have you ever seen something that makes you think a certain way? I mean, much of our life is surrounded by advertisement that's trying to get you to think a certain way. You know? There used to be intermission in movies so that you would go get popcorn and need drinks. <laughs> you know, at one time popcorn was free so that they could charge you four or five times as much for a drink. Now they just do both, right? Church, the Bible is full of stories where people's eyes led them astray. Lot looked up and saw the plain of Shinar. And he thought it was well-watered and wonderful and like the garden of God. So he went there. That turned out to be a bad choice. The Bible's also full of men who lose their eyes and can see for the first time. Think on a man like Samson. Everything he set his eyes on turned out to be a bad thing. When he lost his eyes, for the first time he could see things clearly spiritually. Let's go ahead and say we don't always assess the situation perfectly. Let's just, let's just go ahead and go back to that scene in the garden where mankind looked at that tree and saw that it was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and say, I'm not going to be led around by what I see in front of me. The very faith that we profess is based on what you cannot see with the natural eye, but you know is true. He saw that the men were scattering. And that you did not come at the set time, and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer a burnt offering. Let's walk through this. He sees something which makes him think something which makes him do something. What if he, uh, what if he, just made a covenant with his eyes not to look on something that was unclean, like Job. So, well, Eric, he's in the situation. He can't help it. No, I assure you, you can help it. In every situation, you have the choice how you're going to view it. Whether you are blessed or whether you are cursed often depends on that choice that you make. You know, the first chapter of James speaks about this. Stay right here in Samuel. We're going to put it on the screen for you so that I can hold you in one narrative while I ramble all over the place. In James 1, beginning in verse 14, as soon as you get it on the screen, let us know. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, say my own desire, my own desire. he is dragged away and enticed, say enticed. enticed, then after desire has conceived, get it out there, say conceived, conceived. it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. How does the death of a Christian begin? With an unwholesome desire. You could say that the easiest place to stop all of this is by controlling how you see things. Do you know that the Word of God will shape how a man sees things? You know, in the Word of God, five loaves and two fishes can feed multitudes. In the Word of God, an iron axe head can swim. In the Word of God, we see a supernatural a power at work. But with your natural eyes, you tend to discount all of those things. And that affects the way that you think and your thoughts affect the way that you are compelled to act. James actually teaches us that desires entice you. That enticement eventually brings about a conception. That conception, if, going, if, if it's not aborted, if you don't abort this terrible process, gives birth to sin. How many times you woke up and said, I will not do such a thing? 
thought about it all day long, and then drove to the place you said you would not go and did what you promised you wouldn't do. You know, we can blame it on the devil. We can blame it on our pastors. We can blame it on someone else. But it starts with an unwholesome desire. And the only way that you change the attitudes and the thoughts of the heart is with the Word of God. Psalm 119 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You have to stuff a heart full of the Word of God to begin to change the way that you see the world. If you let sin go unchecked, it always comes to maturity as death. This is why the book of Romans tells us the wages of sin is death. Now, if you keep reading about Saul in verse 13... Samuel tells him, you acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. Say all time. time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The rule is if sin reigns, you die. That's the rule. Romans 6 teaches us that if you die to sin, you will reign. It really is not a difficult equation. And it doesn't matter how many hours we spend counseling. How many times we talk about an exception to the rule? Sin causes death. And nobody just happens to sin. It starts by being enticed or desires enticing you. They drag you away. You cannot dwell on some things. You're simply not allowed to. So Saul is given a kingdom, but his own eyes, his own thoughts compelled him to do things that God said He cannot do. What a desperate situation. His army is hiding under rocks. They're hiding in thorn bushes. Some have all the way deserted the battlefield. They're not hiding on it. They're not even there. When I read that, I can't help but think about these last 20 some odd years in the Christian faith. Some of my brothers are hiding behind their pews. Some of my brothers are hiding behind their families. Some of my brothers have deserted the battlefield all together. And you wonder, how does such a thing happen? Tonight, I want to talk to you about some ways that we can rearm the camp of God. Amen. Amen. If you skip down with me to verse 19, I want to show you something else that was a situation in Israel. Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said... Otherwise, the Hebrews will make swords or spears. Look at verse 22. So on the day of battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son, Jonathan, had them. What could be worse than a cowardice army hiding from a superior force with a cowardice king and only two swords on the battlefield? That's an incredible problem. The army you're facing is innumerable. You've got about 600 men left with you that haven't run off, but only two swords. I don't know how you found yourself in the situation that you're in, but I know that there is only one proper response to your situation. That is to trust the living God with all of your heart. He will give you the armories of heaven. One anointed man is better than an AK-47. I can promise that. In fact, I read somewhere that a guy with a jawbone made donkeys out of the enemy that attacked him. I know of a prophet who led men, whole armies blind back to their leaders, who could prophesy what was happening in the bedroom 
of the king. I mean, a man who has the eyes of the spirit is not limited to anything in any area, not the size of our church, not the size of our budget, not the number of our friends. In fact, a man who trusts God has all that is God's at his disposal. You know, I can't remember the last time I felt outnumbered, outmanned, or overpowered because I feel like the living one is with me. Now, there are moments where I have to set, in, set behind a new set of eyes. The roof in Mexico was one of those. <laughs> Praise God, I was not alone. Look around you and say, I'm not alone. I want to read verse 23 and then take a slightly new trend with you. Now a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. Michmash is a Hebrew word that means the hidden place. What an interesting thing. It's in the hidden place that we often find out new things about our own lives, new things about the nature of God. In fact, I went to a military graduation, a young man in the Air Force that was on fire for the Lord at the time. In fact, he baptized some of his friends uh, in the military showers with a big gulp cup. Uh, His whole uh, platoon called him Maximus because he was so in love with the Lord and he simply couldn't be shaken. And uh, I read written on their wall up there in... uh, The military base, integrity is what you do when no one is looking. I'd like to talk to you about the integrity of your heart at Michmash. Are you ready? Verse 1, one day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armor, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. By the way, the Philistine outpost on the other side is the one with innumerable soldiers. The one that has already routed Israel. That is before Israel deserted the battlefield, before the king went and hid, before all of those, before he got the prophecy from Samuel. They've already been whipped badly by this group. Come, let us go to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. One real problem with the charismatic church. I don't know if that's what we are. It's what some people would call us. I don't identify very much with the charismatics I see on TV. I I don't like them. I don't want to be associated with them. Uh, Nor do I identify with a bunch of the other denominations. I want to be known as a Christian that is recklessly abandonment of concern for this world. A Christian who is moved by the Spirit of God. But one of the problems with churches that believe that they can hear God's voice today is even when they're right, He may not have told you to tell everybody everything that you know. You know, Joseph pronounced his dreams to his brothers and he found himself in the bottom of a hole. It's important that we be spirit-led in our speech. I believe that God is stirring Jonathan in this moment and that he makes a conscious decision not to tell his father. Say, why not? Well, in Genesis 31, 20, you can write that down. Jacob was told by God to leave this land, go back to Bethel, and he chose not to tell Laban. Why do you think he chose not to tell Laban? Because Laban would try to dissuade him from going. He had already tricked him from seven years to 14 years, which had turned into 20 years. And sometimes when God speaks, he does not want you to form a committee of your nearest relatives to determine what they think about what God told you. 
By the way, in 1 Samuel 25, 19, all of you who have been through marriage counseling might recognize this one. When Abigail recognized that her husband was acting like an idiot and that David was the righteous king of Israel and that her husband had greatly offended the righteous king, she did not consult with her husband. She went and made peace with David immediately. I don't have to tell you how that story ended. She ended up David's wife. She ended up bearing children whose names meant fruitful. I mean, amazing. Why didn't she tell her husband? She didn't want to be talked out of what God had said to do. How about Nehemiah? In the second chapter of Nehemiah, in the 12th verse, he says he consulted with no man about what God had put in his heart to go and do. Now, it's true that the Bible says that a multitude of counselors is wisdom. It's true that we want to be accountable to the authorities that are over us. But let me ask you, where is Saul at this place in his life? Saul is disobedient. Saul's already sold out. Saul is occupying the position that God has demanded be vacated. He's not leading the armies to victory. He is, in fact, endangering them every day through his disobedience. And yet, when God speaks something to you overwhelming, something daring, something courageous, your first inclination is to try to build a consensus among the people that you know. Well, there are people that you might want to build a consensus with. The ones who love Jesus more than you do, not less than you do. I know more people that stay in dry, dead churches because they're worried about what their families will think about them if they go the whole nine yards with Jesus. You have a really convicting service. Very often they're not sure they're saved, but they are sure that they want their family's approval. Let me ask you, do you want the, the approval of your father or the favor of your brother's? Joseph is a story where we find out you often cannot have both. The favor of his father meant he had the disapproval of his brothers. What if your king wants you to experience a baptism and the criticism of man so that you know what it is to be inoculated from the praise of man and be liberated from the fear of man? What if the king of kings actually knows you and he speaks to you And it was not up to the ruling Politburo's debate. He didn't consult his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. There's a whole prophetic story there, but we're not going to do it now. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah. Hmm. Ahijah's name means brother of Yahweh. Who Who was wearing an ephod. So what's an ephod, church? Why is he wearing an ephod? Who's supposed to wear an ephod? priest so the king of israel is defeated on the battlefield his troops have abandoned and god has said i'm taking the kingdom from you saul's taking a nap under the uh pomegranate tree at migron and ahijah who is wearing priestly garments is there you know it's an amazing thing those who have already compromised their walk who no longer go out to dare great things for god with god love to hang out with the pseudo-religious They love to hang out with those that have all of the right garments or degrees, but for a long time have not been pleasing to the Lord. I'd like to talk to you about Ahijah's background here for a second. He was wearing an ephod. He was a son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitub, son of Phinehas. Now, let me ask you, what does Ichabod have to do with the story? 
If you're not remembering this, why don't we go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel 22. And we'll read just a couple verses and I'll see if I can refresh your memory. I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 2 and 22. Having one of those kind of evenings. In 1 Samuel 2 and 22, now Eli was very old. Who was very old? Heard about everything his sons were doing to Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he said to them, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear spreading among God's people. If a man sins against another man, God may mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. While you're thinking about the father's rebuke, go to chapter 3 and verse 13. This is a little anecdote from uh, Samuel. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible and he failed to restrain them. Understand Eli was not sleeping with women outside the temple. His sons were. But he knew about it. And maybe for him grace was a license for immorality because he warned them but he didn't do anything to stop it. He warned them, but it went on long enough for all of Israel to hear about it. And God held him responsible for the sin that he knew about and did not prevent because it was in his power to do so. The guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Well, we're here. Flip to the fourth chapter and pick up with me in the 18th verse. This is a report coming back to Eli from a battle. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off of his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for he was an old man and heavy. He led Israel 40 years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the women attending her said, Don't despair. You have given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. When we're describing Saul's setting, I don't know which is more devastating. The natural defeat that he suffered or the spiritual defeat that is now evident subsequent to the natural defeat. He is hanging out under a pomegranate tree. He has an army with no weaponry, and he's hanging out with priests, a line that has been cursed because the glory of God departed over their sin. And this is who the king of Israel is hanging out with. So Jonathan didn't consult with anyone. He simply decided to take faithful Action. Sometimes it is better to ask for forgiveness than permission. I don't think I want to expand on that. I'll be the victim of my own preaching. (laughs) No one was aware that Jonathan had left. Verse 4 of chapter 14. 
on each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. By the way, this word cliff here in Hebrew is not quite cliff. It's jagged or tooth-like rocks. It's as if the earth sprouted fangs and wanted to devour the people. I've seen it, uh, uh, examined it even from a military tactical standpoint. It is incredible terrain. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a jagged tooth-like rocks, a cliff. One was called Boses and the other was Sina. Now, when we read this in English, this really does not have the impact on you that it would have if you were reading it in Hebrew. And since we're not Hebrew speakers, I want to simplify it for you. Boses means shining, but has come to represent glory. Sina means thorn bush, but because of the thorn bush in the Bible's significance and similarity to sin, it means suffering. How interesting that a man of faith rises up among Israel's worst defeat while all of the leadership is backslidden. And out of that group, God calls a man and has put it in his heart to go to the enemy that has whipped everyone in his family, everyone he knows, caused the utter desolation of Israel, left them weaponless, hopeless. The only thing they had a bunch of was pity. And he called him, and what is standing between him and the enemy? Both glory and suffering. I want to tell you that what Paul and Barnabas told the elders in every church that they went on missionary, uh, uh, established churches, and then revisited to encourage in Acts chapter 13 and 14, they said it is through many trials, toils, and tribulations that we enter the kingdom. There is no way to the victory of God without going through both suffering and glory. There is an inextricable relationship between the two of them. This is why you're blessed when men persecute you for righteousness sake. The blessing is right there with the suffering. This is why when you are suffering reproach for the kingdom of God, the glory of God, according to Peter, rests upon your shoulders. When everyone is hiding... When everyone is swordless, when the king is hanging out with the most backslidden priest that there have ever been, one man doesn't consult anybody. He says, I want still to fight with the enemy. So I want to ask you, church, is there any fight left in you? We heard prophecy after prophecy about despair. We heard scriptural encouragement after encouragement about when the Lord shows up, it can all change. Where have you decided just to declare a truce with circumstances that are not right? Have you accepted defeat when you're supposed to be fighting on the battlefield? I hear it all of the time from supposed Christians. We have to live in this old flesh. Excuse me, what in the H-E double hockey sticks does that mean? I've crucified my flesh with Christ. What do you mean we have to live in it? I count it dead. What does that mean? You know what it means? It means I've accepted a certain level of sin in my life. Which is why the same group of people, every time they pray, cannot stop reminding God that they're sinners. 
if they called themselves the righteousness of God in Christ, then they might have to live up to their own words. The same men that talk incessantly about positional righteousness, which I believe in, forget that they actually have to stand in righteousness. It's a whole lot easier just to hide, you know. I think one of the best hiding places in the American church is simply doctrinal statements. We parrot back things that we've never wrestled with. It's not that they're not true. It's that you have no concept of even how they were formulated. They haven't become true in your heart and life because you simply learn to say it as a way to insulate yourself from the actual struggle. I love Jonathan. Listen to his heart here. Verse 6, Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let us go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. I'd like to just examine that for a minute. Jonathan's name in Hebrew actually means God has given. When I named Gabriel Jonathan, Gabriel Jonathan, it's because his name means God has given. God had given Israel one man who had it in his heart to take it to the enemy, even though God had not specifically said, I want you to go attack that outpost. In the spirit-filled world, when you have a direct word from God, you're like, well, amen, we do that. But what happens when you don't? What happens when you just know it's in God's character? What happens when you know the Bible generally supports it and you have a burning desire to do it? Jonathan did not even have the comfort of the audible word from God. There is no thus saith the Lord statement. How many decisions in our life actually come down to that moment where you've cried out to the Lord, cried out to the Lord, and cried out to the Lord, but you have not heard Charlton Heston's voice from the heavens? I know, you're all very spiritual. You hear from God far more than I do. And in my life, the times the Lord has actually spoken, not an impression, not seemed good to the Spirit, not spoken to me through the Word, but spoken to me in an undeniable way, I could count on my fingers. And that's been over decades. But you, I'm sure he speaks to every hour of the day. For those poor and spiritual folks like me, though, what do you do in the absence of a thus saith the Lord moment? Jonathan was so eager to accomplish something for the Lord, so wanting to distinguish himself from the bunch of lukewarm backsliding pansies that he was around. He didn't consult with anybody. He said, I'm going to pick a direction and move in it and maybe God will help me. Church, if when you look around your peer group, you don't see men that you so admire that you would do anything to be like them, you might need to consider being in a new peer group. Have you settled to be a big fish in a very small pond? No, no, man. Our church has got thousands. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. I want to be surrounded by those who are looking for the next great thing they can do for the Lord because their life is not their own anymore. Their life belongs to the Lord and their one desire is to spend it for him well. Now, if you think I'm only... I I promise I'm preaching to you, no one else. Not people outside the wall, not those guys who are attending some circus church somewhere. I'm talking to you. It's possible to sit in a church full of fired up people and be excited that they're doing that and that is also a way to hide. 
Amen. I go to a church where the brothers do this and the brothers do that. And man, you should have heard about that prayer meeting. And what you're not telling them is you only heard about those things. You weren't there either. Yeah. Church, Jonathan had that kind of heart that had to accomplish something for the Lord. When I see Squirrel Team 6 over there, they've graduated. They're no longer Squeal Team, they're Squirrel Team. Soon they'll be Navy SEALs, but right now they're Squirrel Team 6. I see young hearts that are full of adventure. They are dying to accomplish something for the Lord. They're not going to settle to be international uh, Xbox champions. They want to accomplish something for the Lord. And look at Jonathan's heart here. Do, I'm sorry, uh, let me repeat Jonathan, verse 6. Jonathan said to the young armor bearer, Come, let us go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. In Jonathan's eyes, say in his eyes, it didn't matter what the size of the army was. In Jonathan's eyes, it didn't matter what his assessment was. Before he stepped onto the battlefield, Jonathan had decided that God is able to save whether by few or by many. Look at how different that is than Saul's assessment. But they're in the same family. Or are they? One might be being born of a royal family. The armor bearer says, do all that you have in mind. His armor bearer said, go ahead, I am with you heart and soul. Say heart and soul. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 4. We're going to read verse 29. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 29. Say there when you're there. Israel's situation prior to Jonathan doing this is that they are sinning. They are sinning because they're running from the battlefield. They're sinning because they're hiding in holes. They're sinning because they're following a king who is sinning. In Deuteronomy 4, in verse 29, God is speaking to the nation at its formation, 40 years after it was formed, and he is telling them what to do when they find themselves in a situation where they have sinned. But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you look for him with all your heart... And with all your soul, when you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in the latter days, you will return to the Lord, your God and obey him for the Lord, your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant of your forefathers, which he confirmed to them by oath. Understand the setting is that faith is rising in Jonathan and he turns to a nameless armor bearer who knows how to do one thing well. Repent. They are in the situation they're in because they've sinned. They've suffered loss because they've sinned. In fact, sin has been their defining characteristic, but when presented with an opportunity for faith, he said, I'm with you heart and soul. The exact and only time that phrase is used is when God was saying, after you have suffered judgment, after you have lost at the hands of your enemies because you did not listen to me, at that moment, if you'll turn to me heart and soul, you'll find I'm merciful 
and I will restore you. That's an interesting thing. Now, there is another phrase in the Bible that is very similar. It's Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and what's the last one? All your strength. Let me ask you, this armor bearer, if he just turns to the Lord heart and soul, he may have a revelation. If he never puts feet to his face, if he never actually stretches out in physical strength to do what God says, I say he never finds out how great God is. But I think you're going to find out he does all three. Repentance begins with the heart and soul, but it finishes with the feet. So let me ask you, have you felt very badly about the way that you've lived? Have you experienced the consequence of sin and the underachieving life because of sin, but you have never put feet to your faith? I love Jonathan's response because in my own life, while I was still a wicked human being, my friend Matthew Pirro got born again. When every Christian that I knew, in fact, turned out really not to be Christians, men who could quote the Roman road to salvation and attended church well, but there was no actual evidence of God's saving grace in their life. They just could quote doctrinal statements. The same men that before I was born again and going to topless bars and fighting in parking lots and all of the things that I did had no problem with me. But as soon as I got born again and filled with the Spirit, suddenly I was a problem in their church. Matthew got born again, the first of my peer group that did. I persecuted him terribly. In the football pile, Matthew was vicious, by the way. Gentle, sweet, all of those things on a football field. He was vicious. He had no, he was like water boy, you know. There was a rage pinup in him somewhere, shouldn't be there. Pat, I don't know what he was angry about. I know it wasn't your cooking, so I, I don't know what it was, but something was wrong. And uh, if Matt tackled me on the football field, which happened a lot, he was uh, a very dominant athlete. I stepped on his hands getting out of the pile. I remember spitting on him. Uh, I called him. Uh, racial pejoratives because I was an a unsaved man. You know why I did all of those things? I was convicted to my core because he was now in love with Jesus. And all of us said we loved Jesus, but none of us actually did. I mean, we thought we did, but never enough to obey his commands, never enough to walk as he did. In fact, we wrapped false doctrine around us like a blanket to insulate us because we got a baptismal certificate, got wet, prayed a sinner's prayer, and could quote doctrine. We believed we were all saved, and Matt was the first to break out of that. You know what his response was to me? He loved me, which actually ticked me off even more. Because the truth is I really loved him and it broke my heart that he could no longer be. Every time he did not go with us where we were going, every time he did not do what we were doing, it increased the conviction that was upon me. It let me know that I was deserving of judgment. So Matthew is born again and uh, he's praying for me. And things got a lot worse before they got better. But on the day I got born again, the next morning, Matt is the first one that I went to see. And with tears streaming down his face, he hugged me. He was the only one that hugged me that day. 
if you have faith rising in your heart and you can find even one person to be in covenant with, Jesus Christ sent them out two by two for a reason. When Peter was in the room, he seems to have owned it. I mean, he spoke the most. He was usually with John. And you could get the impression John didn't have a lot to say because it's always Peter's dialogue everywhere. Peter was a bit of a loud mouth like somebody else I know. When Peter was dead and gone, though, John did his finest work. And he found out that he was always very capable. He was just also content to work right next to somebody else because together the two of them could achieve more than any one of them could alone. It's my friend's 40th birthday, and I don't mind telling you I couldn't have climbed any of the mountains that we've climbed. Couldn't have done any of the things that we've done without him. And it's not just because he was saved first. It's because biblical friendship, real covenants, are different than worldly. I'd like to read you a couple passages. Let's start with, in fact, throw them on the screen as fast as you can. They'll be in Proverbs 17, 17. A lot of you can... Uh, quote this, but I want you to actually think about it. Say there when you are there and keep your finger in Proverbs. We're going to read a few of them. A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. I, I'd like to suggest to you that these are related in that a friend can become a brother, and it's adversity that does it. Almost everywhere we go now in the world, people ask me if Matthew and I are brothers. You know? And I'm like, obviously, look at us. Right? He's dark and lovely, and I'm corpulent. But, I mean, obviously. We've actually been friends long enough that people think we're related. Some of the earliest problems that I had in my Christian walk is people said to me in my own family, I think you love them, meaning Matthew and Jennifer, more than you love us. And I said, I do. But you can come be part of the church. You know, it's not, it's not exclusive. You know, I love them because they're obedient to the things of God. I love them because they're inspiring. How about Proverbs 18.24? Let's take that one for a second. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I bet every time you've ever heard that quoted, it was by a Christian who was referring to Jesus, referring to the idea that your friends leave you, but Jesus never will, right? Of course, that's not quite what it says. There is a kind of friendship that goes beyond your Facebook friends, I promise. There is a kind of friendship that is born in the heavens and requires faithfulness to God so that you are faithful to each other. It's a covenant relationship. You're familiar with it with husbands and wives. Maybe less and less so every year, but you are familiar with it. The truth is, this is what biblical friendship looks like, though. It goes beyond that of a brother. Why does your brother love you, a, a natural brother? Because you're born to the same parents. Because you have to. There's an obligation. Because the Bible... Why does your friend love you? Because he saw a connection that came from God and God alone. Now, some of you may be thinking of friendships that you have. You're like, oh, me and so-and-so, we've, we've been friends for years. 
I'd like you to examine these next few scriptures to find out how good of friends you are. Could you take Proverbs 27 and verse 6? Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiply kisses. Let me ask you, when is the last time that that friend you're thinking about wounded you because he didn't want you to sin? You know, Matthew was an unmarried 17-year-old at the time, and I remember him pulling me aside. Matthew's fingers and his toes are like extra appendages. If you've ever seen... Matt would wear a size six and a half shoe, except for that great toe on his foot. It's, uh, I think he wears about a size 13, and it's all big toe. He pointed that long finger at me like I felt like I had to duck when it stuck out. And he said, I don't think you're talking to her like Jesus would. I've been married just a few months, and you know what? He was right. Do your friends have the freedom... Do they feel the initiative? Do they feel the responsibility from God to correct you? Because if they don't or they can't, then how good of friends are you really? See, we need to examine what we think are friends. A friend in the kingdom is never going to watch his brother sin if he can prevent it. Remember Eli? Was he a good father? Well, he warned them. I guess it was up to them. No, if my son was doing that, I'd break his legs. I'd do whatever it took to keep him from doing that. So that's not very nice. You're right. It'd be nicer to let him go to hell. Guys, this polite gospel that is like, well, each, each their own. No, that's not friendship. That's friendship with the world. That's laying down under a pomegranate tree while the real soldiers are on the battlefield. How about Proverbs 27 and verse 9? Just skip down a couple verses. Perfume and incense bring joy to the heart. And the pleasantness of one's friend springs from his earnest counsel. If people cease to be your friend when they give you their earnest counsel, then you weren't really very good friends to start with, were you? When I ask Matthew or Wade something, it's not because we're uh, locked in a legal contract. It's because I value their advice. They are my closest friends. If they don't have the freedom to tell me, then who would? Let me ask you, do you have friends like that? Do you have the kind of friends that wound you not over their sin, over yours? Do you have friends that you've stuck with through adversity to the point that you value their counsel, even if their counsel is you are wrong. And how long have you had those friendships? See, when men and women are in Christ Jesus for a decade, two decades, three decades, four decades, and we don't have long-lasting friendships that demonstrate accountability, it's because we have rebellious hearts. Jonathan was called. He wanted to go across that suffering and that glory. But the first thing that he does is find a willing partner to go with him. But we're pretty sure we can do it all alone. You know why? Because you don't have to argue with yourself. You know why? Because you're already in agreement with yourself. You don't have to fight to submit to yourself out of love. You already love yourself. But when you have to work with someone that you love and they disagree with you, it will make you work out your Christian faith. It will make you see where God's favor rests. 
This is the idea behind actual friendship. I don't want to take the time to read it because I have some other things, but I would like to just give you a summary of the third letter that John wrote. You know, that's that little one way in the back that you never read. In only the first 11 verses, the the book is only one chapter long, uh, John calls Gaius his dear friend four times in 11 verses. Listen very carefully to how directly he speaks to his dear friend. You go, oh, that's because he's an apostle. No, it's because they were friends. Okay? You need in your life, not just any friend, not just, you know, one of the guys you used to kick it with from high school. You need born of heaven, Holy Ghost, fiery saints that love the Lord enough to tell you when you're wrong, that love the Lord enough to encourage you even when no one else on the planet will, but only if you're going with God. Maybe my angriest moment in our entire, and I've had a few, (laughs) in our entire church history was when I looked at one Christian brother who told another Christian brother, I'm with you no matter what, and we were talking about adultery. No, I'm not with you. I am not with Matthew no matter what. I want you to hear that. He's not with me no matter what. We're with each other as long as the other one is following Christ with their whole heart. The day that Matthew walks in and says he prefers a secretary to Cassidy, our friendship ends. It ends that moment. The day that Eric Stevens would prefer to embezzle rather than give sacrificially, Wade Sutherland will not count me as a friend. Do you know what that means? It means when I'm looking at sin, I weigh it against not only my love for Christ, I do not want to lose those cherished friends. You're scared to lose your friends for righteousness sake. I'm scared to lose mine over sin. Might say something about the kind of friends we have. Are you hearing me here? Now, if you've lost friends for righteousness sake, I promise the Lord will bless you. If you've lost friends for sin, well, I think you get the picture. Do y'all get the impression I love Matthew P. Rose? My life's been richly blessed with quite a few friends. But Matthew taught me what friendship was because we were patient with each other. Our friendship was based on the Word of God. And uh, I always had a little bit more persuasive personality. Matt had still waters that ran deep. You know, I noticed one day that most of my closest friends don't speak as much as I do. That says a lot about me. (laughs) But when Matthew spoke, I learned to listen. I learned to listen. I needed that in my life. I didn't need somebody who just simply out-argued. I needed somebody who thought about the will of God and could suggest a scripture. Do you have friends like that, or is that only your pastor's job and you have to schedule time with him? Okay, verse 7. Do all you have in mind, his armor-bearer said. Go ahead. I am with you heart and soul. One of the reasons I think God rewards Jonathan with this kind of friendship is Jonathan was this kind of friend to David. I'm not going to read it to you, but in 1 Samuel 18, 3, Jonathan chose to be friends with David during David's outcast years. He made a covenant with him. So much so that a son of Jonathan, a grandson of Saul, named Mephibosheth, ends up at David's table in 2 Samuel 9 solely because of his friendship 
with Jonathan, David's friendship with Jonathan. In other words, Jonathan was a man who handled his friendships well, so God rewarded him with a nameless armor bearer who would handle their friendship well. If you want people to be with you heart and soul in the kingdom, let me ask you, when have you ever demonstrated that to another? I learned a long time ago, if you are not faithful to godly friendships, you won't be faithful to your spouse. If you're not faithful to godly friendships and to your spouse, you'll never be faithful to a ministry. In fact, when a man gets right with God, it puts him right with everyone else. This is 1 John 1, 5 through 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Our fellowship with him puts us in right fellowship with each other. I never wronged Matthew. I, of course, wronged him many times. I never stayed in my wrong with Matthew because I wanted to be right with God. And the two are inextricably linked. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, come then, we will cross over towards the men and let them see us. That's a great battle plan. There's more of them than sand on the seashore. There's two of us and only one with a sword. Here I am. Wow. This is DCD kind of stuff right here. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. If that overwhelming force wants to fight with us, we won't do it. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. Now, when you throw out a fleece because, you know, God wants to give you that Corvette or some other stupid thing, the fleece is usually something like this. Lord, if this light turns green today, then I'll know you want me to buy that Corvette. Lord, if the next baby announcement I hear, the child was born naked, I will know you want me to buy that Corvette. We throw out fleeces in the direction we want them to go. Listen to what he did. If they do the absurd, if they do the impossible, The fleece is set up in such a way so that in the worst possible circumstance for the guys, they conclude God's given them to us. That's an incredible thing. You know, if they're willing to fight with us, if we come to them, then we'll know that God has given them into our hands. Let me ask you, how willing are you to do God's will? And how associated with you are people who are willing to do God's will. Did you make kind of a treaty under a pomegranate tree to hide in clefts of rocks and caves? Are you hanging out, everybody's swordless, but it's okay because we're all swordless? You know, the number one thing I hear about people that visit our church is like, oh man, all you guys know the word. And I'm like, well, what was the church like where you came from? How long were you there? How is it that you did not learn the word in the 10 years that you were there? What were you people doing? It's not uncommon for somebody to be born again six months in our church and have a commanding grasp of the Scripture. Do you know why? That's not uncommon in Christianity. 
It's just uncommon among those who are hiding in the clefts of the rocks and the holes in the ground with backslidden priests and disobedient kings. What if we partnered together and every two of us were willing to attack the most the most defensible fortress on the planet? What if we knew we had to go through suffering to get to the glory and we were more than willing to do it, whether by many or by few? What if every two men in here, every two families in here had that kind of heart? So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outposts. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. That's Jonathan's sign that they're going to win. You know, if I step in the ring with Mike Tyson and he thinks he can knock me out, that'll be my sign that God wants me to fight with him. Is that how your fleece would go? Come up here. We'll teach you a lesson. Do you know why the world thinks that? Because they've done it to all those that went before you. Most people talk a battleship game, but they crumple as if they were in a rowboat at the first sign of turbulence. That's why you need a friend. You need one who was there and said, no, no. Do you remember our fleece? Do you remember what we said? We're not going to dig up and doubt what we've sown in faith. In the name of Jesus Christ, we don't quit on him. Because God knows at any moment, any one of you may want to quit. I did many times. At my hardest moment in this ministry, guess who God sent here to help us carry on? And then when two of us were at our hardest moment in the ministry, guess who God sent here to help us carry on? It turns out that the friendships that God blessed you with, if you maintain them correctly in the word, they will come back to you at the moments you need them most in life. Could we flash through a couple scriptures here? Take Joshua 23, verses 9 and 10. The Lord has driven out before you the great and powerful nations. To this day, no one has been able to withstand you. One of you routes a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you just as he promised. One spirit-filled man, one man submitted to the power of the Almighty is more than a match for a thousand men who are on the wrong side of God. But in Leviticus 26, verses 8, we hear it said a different way. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall by the sword before you. There is a multiplier that covenant brings. I know the way you're used to hearing this verse quoted is one will chase a thousand and two will chase... Do you know what that verse is actually about, you students of the word? You'll find it in Deuteronomy. And it's spoken of as when the people were cursed. When they were disobedient, then one man would chase a thousand of them. And two would chase ten thousand of them. We never caught that, did we? Now, I'm not here to argue those kind of issues. I'm simply here to say... That when we honor God in covenant and obedience, it multiplies our force, right? Leviticus 26 talks about removing idolatry, standing in unity called shalom in Hebrew, and going after it, and nothing would be impossible for them. So who have you unified with? 
Well, brother, me and my family. Well, that's a good start. Your family definitely has to be unified. But you will not find that example in the Bible. So, well, the Lord just hadn't given them. Well, you need to start praying every day because you're not supposed to do it without them. And nobody in here is an exception to that rule. Now, you may have to get somewhere without them, but you should not stay somewhere without them. You understand what I'm saying? Develop your friendships. Make yourself accountable to people. It will multiply you in the kingdom in a way that counts. Could we look at Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12? And don't dismiss it as a familiar scripture. Probably not very many of you have memorized the book of Ecclesiastes. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. Is that true or not? True or not? True or not? Then why do it alone? It's not possible. There's not one other person that God has called. There's not one other faithful person. You're the only one. Remember when Elijah thought like that? By the way, when Elijah thought like that, not only was he told there were 7,000, you know what he did? God told him to go raise up his successor. You're done. Let's move on. Listen, if two are better than one, then I reject the single pastor model. If two are better than one, then I reject the Christian Lone Ranger. If two are better than one, then I am going to ask for what is better. You're free to disagree with me, but you need to look in the Word and see whether you disagree with God. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. If you think that any of you are beyond falling, I got a couple decades in this that says you're wrong. And the men that were teaching me when I came in the faith told me about the decades before me. And they said the same thing. Guys, it is littered out there with men who started with a great heart and were corrupted. Sex and money has gotten most of them. That's why you need the kind of friends that could call you to task over either one. Do you know that there is no password in my life, not one, that both Jennifer and Matthew do not have? Not one. None. Not for our bank accounts. Not for anything. Uh, it helps that Matthew remembers numbers. Some of them I didn't give him. He just remembers. <laughs> I'm teasing, but the point is... Who walks over and picks up your phone, not because they're trying to catch you, but they just never occurred to them that, you know, you might have something that they shouldn't see on it. You know, my doors in my house aren't locked. Matthew never knocks when he comes over. He just walks in. He's been doing it since he was 17 and we were newly married. It was awkward then. Uh, <laughs> it's not now. What I'm, what I'm encouraging you towards it's not some strange commune life, not some hippie life. What I'm encouraging you towards is real relationship. Trust me, going to drink beers with the guys at a game is not a friendship. In fact, if you couldn't leave everything you own and those you love, like your wife and your children, for an indeterminate period of time in the hands of the people that you call friends without any concern that they didn't want your wife, your children, or your money, then they're not friends. Amen. Well, it's getting late. 
If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. I would encourage you to never let ministry isolate you. Stay connected. It is not God's plan that you become an island to yourself. If two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one can be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Peter and John went everywhere together in the book of Acts. You see them interchange. But Peter, James, and John formed the government of the church. You see they were sent in twos. They governed in pairs of three. It so happens that we're a ministry that maintains friendships over decades. And they're important to us. We do exactly what we say we're going to do. And we do that because we think that those are more important resources than money or buildings. Where will you be in 20 years? What will you be attempting for the Lord? Will you need relationships to get it done? Will you need real friends to encourage you, to help you when you fall, to help you stay spiritually warm? Will you need those? Or are you an island to yourself? Because I formed the friendships with these pastors in the first few years of my Christian walk. And we have fought to maintain them no matter what happened. We've been in different churches. We've been in different states. We've been in different jobs. We've been in different places in life where we got upset with each other. We've never allowed ourselves to be separated because we love the Lord. Verse 11. So both of themselves showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. Well, there was a lesson taught that day. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. A real friend will put himself between you and the danger, not throw you under the bus. When is the last time you heard Matthew publicly defame Eric? When is the last time you heard Eric publicly defame Matthew? It does not happen. And the reason that it does not happen is that is not friendship. Friendship would rather you be wrong than to shame your brother. The gospel teaches this. How are you going to lay down your life for a brother if you can't lay down your reputation? Why not rather protect your friend? Well, because it says something about our hearts. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet. This was a rocket, jaggy, tooth-like protrusion out of the ground, going through suffering, to get to glory, going through glory and it being followed by suffering. It was hard and he had to do it with his hands and his feet. They didn't just stroll into the enemy's camp. Every book that I have ever read about how easy their ministry took off. Watch the ministry long enough and you find out a pastor's with a secretary. You find out somebody's embezzled or they're teaching that there is no hell. God makes it so that it is hard enough you have to need your brothers. He makes it so that it's hard enough that you have to persevere and couldn't do it without. There is a mountain in Peru that I never would have climbed without Brent Vincent. We're both stubborn men. And he's an anointed man. Sometimes it was, there's no way Brent's going to climb this and I'm not. Other times it was... If he can do it, and his legs are only that long, I can do this. 
Biblical friendships, godly friendships will cause you to succeed where you otherwise would have failed. We need them. Hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. Say right behind him. When I was still a lost young man, I walked into a locker room where there were six other angry young men. And one person had my back, right? Y'all know what that is. He had my back. He was right behind me about 2,000 feet. That was the last day we were friends. Lots of hospital visits, lots of legal implications, lots of problems. You were worth it, Jim. But it is in the adversity that you find out where your real friends are. Don't wait till you're buried in adversity you didn't ask for. Take real friends and say, let's go do something for the Lord. Let's go do it. And it will deepen the real friendships and it will separate you from those who just want to talk about doing things for the Lord. LCMF is action-oriented. That's why most of you are here. We show our faith by what we do. That doesn't define your worth, what you do. Your worth was defined by the blood of Christ. Having said that, we believe in doing. That means those who are striving to do the most naturally start to gravitate together. That's what happens, and you're strengthened for it. You spur one another on with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan. Say they fell before Jonathan. And his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. I don't have time to teach the rest of the chapter. You don't have, I have time. You don't have time. Let's say this, though. In a real friendship, sometimes he's going to knock it down and you're going to put the sword to it. Other times, he's going to knock it down and you. I mean, you're supposed to work in tandem. There are no superstars in the kingdom. If your friendship is so defined in your roles that you can't pinch hit for each other and you're jealous of each other. That's not a friendship, it's a competition. My most proud moments in life have been watching my friends succeed. Watching them fight through miscarriages and have children. Watching them sell their houses for Jesus. Watching them leave jobs. Watching them leave what other people would consider the brass ring of ministry to go minister in a storefront. Those are the moments I'm like, yeah, how could God not bless this? That's like climbing through Cena and Moses. Watching them start again in new places. Church, we need to be surrounded by these things because the truth is the call of God will require not just your hands and feet. It will require your brothers. That's why Jesus didn't go pick one. Everybody loves the Apostle Paul. Do you know Jesus did not go and call the Apostle Paul during those three years of ministry? He didn't do it. He picked 12 scared Jewish boys, one of whom turned out to be a devil. They probably ranged in age from 16 to 30. But they loved not their lives so much as to shrink from death. And they all paired off in ministry. Is that amazing? As great as the Apostle Paul was, if he lost one ministry partner on a task, he picked up another one before he went. Did you see that? Sometimes he picked up two or three. Apparently nobody is enough to do it on their own. There are a lot of responses to this message. And at 9.15, I guess we have to figure out what that response is going to be. There was some despair in the room earlier. There was some set in your ways like... It's hard for hope to rise. I think Psalm 4 says, 
Many are saying, how can anything good come of this? God's response in the seventh verse was, I'll give you greater joy than when new wine and grain abound. I want to encourage you that one faithful step towards Sina and Moses is worth 10,000 days contemplating it. And if you can encourage one person to join with you in the struggle, wow, what a force multiplier that is. Of course, you're going to have to get close enough to share your lives with people. My last little dig on America, and I'm just going to, I'm an American, a big, fat, redneck American. We like our own rooms, our own cars, our own lawnmowers, and our own relationships with Jesus. I'd like to submit to you that the gospel is about sharing your life in covenant with God and those that he has called. And we say that we do it until it comes time to do it. He called a man and made a nation out of him. They were a family. And that whole family, according to Romans eleven twenty six, 26, will be saved together. Not here to argue those merits with you either. I'm simply here to say this never was about an individual. It was about the world at large. <coughs> Could you stand to your feet?